everyone. You're listening to Tobin Tuesdays brought to you by the Manitoban here on 101.5 UMFM. Today is October 9th, 2018. I'm your host, Joe Gonzalez. On today's episode, we have a few interviews, one with Dr. Maria Chartier, who is a research scientist at the Manitoba Center for Health Policy, as well as an assistant professor at the Max Rady College of Medicine. We also have one with disability rights advocate David Lepofsky, who recently gave a talk that was hosted by Barrier Free Manitoba. And finally, we have one with Luis Leatherdale, who recently gave a very generous donation to the Winnipeg Art Gallery, as well with Stephen Boris, who is the director and CEO of the Winnipeg Art Gallery. The topic of mental health has, deservedly, been gaining more and more recognition here in Canada as well as in North America. With campaigns like Bell Let's Talk going on running for a few years now, the conversation around mental health has only gained more traction, with institutions across the board attempting to do their part to place mental health as one of their top priorities. It goes without saying, there's obviously still plenty of work to do. A few years of prominence can only go such a long way to help remedy decades of unhealthy behavior that have been ingrained in our societies. Luckily, more and more studies are being done in order to help advise what more can be done to help promote mental wellness. The Manitoba Center for Health Policy, located at the Max Rady College of Medicine here at the University of Manitoba, recently published their autumn 2018 study titled Mental Illness Among Manitobans. Quoting from their study, they have concluded that this report finds a high prevalence of mental illness which is consistent with previous Manitoban and Canadian studies. Mental illness is often associated with a high degree of suffering and disability, requiring not only mental health services, but also other health and social services. Previous studies have also reported that mental illnesses are among those most responsible for causing long-term disability. This report also demonstrates that childhood and adolescent mental illness is associated with a range of adverse experiences in adulthood, including suicidal behaviors, use of social services, poor educational outcomes, and justice system involvement. This emphasizes the importance of providing prevention and timely intervention early in life. Given the profound consequences on the well-being of Manitobans and the impact on long-term services, Greater investment in prevention of mental illness and mental health services in childhood and adolescence is imperative. Recommendations include increasing mental health promotion and mental illness prevention efforts, increasing suicide prevention efforts, enhancing access and strengthening mental health services, enhancing access and strengthening services for people living with dementia, developing mental health skills and knowledge of existing workforce in health and beyond, addressing health inequities, and supporting ongoing mental health research and evaluation. Given the high prevalence and the many services accessed by people with mental illness, these recommendations will require a whole-of-government approach. Our news reporter, David Zarangi, spoke with the study's lead author, Mariette Chartier, to briefly discuss the report, as well as her observations surrounding mental health and university students. But we still learned a lot, right? We still, uh, it, it still lets us know, uh, we may not know the exact numbers, but what we do know is, you know, like you said, that 28% of adults in Manitoba have been diagnosed. Like, mm. they, they, they've, been, they've been to see their family doctor or they were in the hospital at some point and were diagnosed with a mental uh, disorder. Yeah. And so we know that that's a big number and that, you know, every corner of the province, all age groups. And I, I, before you called, I thought, well, I'll just look at younger adults, like the 18 to 24 group, because I did look at those separately. Yeah. And, you know, they, they've, they tend to actually have, you know, I mean, we looked at different groups, uh, like different diagnoses, but generally speaking, I don't think they have higher rates than anyone else, mm. which tells me they may not be seeking treatment, particularly uh, yeah. this group might not be getting enough treatment um, or, or talking to their family doctor because other surveys, right, when we survey entire populations and, you know, go house to house and 
and do surveys, right. uh, usually the younger population does have higher rates. And I, I didn't find this in the study. Right. So, so it speaks to, I think what we found in this study is for sure an underestimate. Yeah. You know, we, we just know, we just know that the young adults that came in and talked to their doctor about it, I mean, they may still be at a point where they're not talking to their doctor about it, right? Hmm. They're still struggling or not talking to anybody or maybe their friends, but I think it speaks to that young people are likely not not accessing uh, as much as they, they could be. There, there is so much we could do, right, to right. improve mental well-being and prevent mental illness because they're, they're kind of two sides of the coin, right? So mm. one side is being mentally healthy, which right. means that you're... You're feeling, you know, you feel good about yourself, right? You've got a good self-confidence. Right. You, uh, you're enjoying your life. You're pursuing your dreams. Uh, you're, you know, you're, you're satisfied. I, I don't want to say happy because happy is like, you know, you can't always be happy, but, you know, you're, you're satisfied and, right. and you're enjoying your life. So right. that's being in good mental health and many things affect that. And then the other side is preventing mental illness. Like, how do you ensure that? that people don't develop a mental illness like, uh, you know, a depression or yeah. an anxiety disorder or, um, you know, psychosis, addictions, that kind of stuff. So they're, 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 they're separate but interrelated. So right. that if, 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 we can, if we can ensure, because we know that if people have um, a good mental health, right, if they, they can address the challenges that life has, if they have good coping mechanisms, yeah. it does protect them from anxiety and depression, right? It, right. It, it helps you cope with stress, really. Yes. Because let's face it, life is stressful, yes. right? It's, yeah, absolutely. Nothing is perfect. Of course but not. It, but if you have, yeah, you know, but if you have the tools to manage that stress, it can go a long way. You know, there's many, like many levels that you can ensure the, the, the well-being of a population. So if we think of the university, I guess what you could do is go, well, on an individual level, it's about um, maybe it's giving students the tools to be aware of how do you maintain your mental health. Right. So, I mean, I think I think almost anyone, if you ask them, how do you maintain your physical health, they'll be able to tell you, right? They'll right. say, oh, well, I should eat well, and, you know, what else do they say? Uh, exercise, right? Like, right? So people know how to take care of their physical health. But a lot of people, when you ask them, well, how do you make sure that you're you, you, you're taking care of your mental health. Mm. It, it, it's interesting. Some people, some people will be able to tell you, but a lot of people will hesitate. Right? They go, right. "Oh, what do you mean? Huh? You know, I, I, it just, I'm just actually, you know, I'm either mentally well or I'm not." Right? But in, in actual fact, uh, we're finding more and more that there are things you can do. So things like keeping in touch with your friends and your family. Right? Social mm. support is really good for your brain. Things like um, physical activity. So it's great. For for your body, but it's actually really good for your mind. The other important one is um, what we call cognitive restructuring. So mm. making sure that you don't expose your mind to, like, you know, don't read too many depressing things, right? Make yeah. sure that you balance things, that you, you hang around with positive people, that, uh, you know, I mean, there's always some depressing things in the world, and True. we have to be aware, but it's important that you, you just don't always expose yourself to the negative stuff, because... Right. It's hard on our minds, so to make sure that you, you know, you kind of think twice before, um, 
just kind of be aware of what you, the influence that what you're reading or what you're watching yes. or, you know, who you're hanging around with has yeah. on your mind. So those yeah. are just some examples. Yeah, Relaxation, I, mindfulness, all that kind of stuff is really good for us. But, I, yeah. So I, I would say for, for young people, it's to be aware of what keeps them mentally healthy. And we're learning more and more about that. Yeah. Um, that's an individual level, like things you can do for yourself. But then, and then for, for the university, I guess it's, you know, just to make sure that the environment is good, right? Yes. That um, people feel like they belong, uh, that it's safe, right? That people aren't being bullied or aren't exposed to violence, right? That, uh, that they, um, and that they have access to help and they know that if they're feeling, you know, stressed or, you know, anxious or whatever, that depressed, that they can that they can access uh, the counseling services that you know they feel supported. So right. that's really important too. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are some some aspects. I mean, some and then there's the, the more distal ones, like things like you know making sure that people have access to you know healthy workplaces. Uh, right. uh, that they have access to education, which you know the students do right there. They're in school, and uh, being educated is really good for your mental health. Um, what else? Um, you know, safe and accessible transport, um, health-promoting urban designs, the built environment, that kind of stuff yeah. is really important. What we found in our report is we looked at different populations of people. We didn't look at the student population, so I don't know what we would have found. Yeah. But if we looked at personal care homes or people who are receiving social assistance or living in social housing or people who are in the justice system, uh, people in those systems were were suffering a high degree of mental illness. Mm. Um, And so what we concluded from there is that we need to educate our workforce. So people who are working in the justice system, the social services system, uh, health system, of course, but I would also add to that the education system. So people who are working with young people should have some basic understanding of mental wellness Mm -hmm. and mental distress so that you know, to help dispel stigma, but also to, to be able to just direct people to services if they notice something, right? Right. Um, so, I, so I would say that it, just giving people general education about mental health skills and knowledge would be important. The interests and rights of people with disabilities is, loosely speaking, not always placed at the forefront when it comes to policymaking. Last week, the Manitoban published an article regarding the decision by U of M Dining Services to scale back the availability of disposable plastic straws on campus. It's part of a larger movement around the world to phase out the use of plastic straws to either not using them at all or switching to a reusable straw. From the article, Andy Fenwick, a fourth-year U of M art student who has served as a Students Living with Disabilities representative for the Canadian Federation of Students, said that while limiting rather than outright banning plastic straws on campus was a less isolating policy, phasing them out entirely after the supply has run out will cause issues for some people on campus. Even if they are replaced with another product, Fenwick noted that plastic remains the most accessible option. He also added that people applauding the widespread removal of single-use plastic cutlery should consider the perspective of other people in the community. Quote, I think individuals, in general, need to realize that this policy drastically changes the everyday lives of individuals who require plastic straws. On October 4th, a talk was hosted by Barrier Free Manitoba. Quoting from their website, Barrier Free Manitoba is a nonpartisan, 
nonprofit cross-disability initiative that was formed in 2008. We believe that the time had come for the province of Manitoba to enact strong and effective legislation that requires the removal of existing barriers and prevents the creation of new ones. Disability rights advocate David Lepofsky was one of the speakers at the talk, and our news reporter Shauna Matthews had a quick chat with Mr. Lepofsky to discuss his cause, the effects social media has had with helping his cause, and the message he had hoped to deliver to first-year law students when he had spoken to them earlier in the day at Robson Hall. You can read more about this story in the upcoming issue of the Manitoban this week. Like we've said to the federal government, you know, what we're recommending be in this bill comes from learning what the provinces have done well and what they haven't done well. There's a number of things they've done well and a number of things they haven't done well, so let's learn from both. In Ontario, the, the government promised effective enforcement and then resisted telling us what they were really doing. We had to flush it out with freedom of information requests. And it, it's hard to tell how much of it is a, a lack of, we think, it's systemically been lack of leadership from the top. In other words, in a big government, the premier gives priorities to their ministers. They issue mandate letters, and if they say, you know, do more of X, they'll do more of X. And if they know that that will make a difference, that, you know, that they, their, their premiers set a priority for them, that will help. So one of the questions is, in Manitoba is, has the premier set this as a priority for the minister responsible for this? And... You know, that's one of the problems. And we've learned in the states, both under Republican and Democratic presidents, that when there's effective enforcement, there's more change. And it's unfortunate, but that's, that's the way it's unfortunate. That's the way it's been working to some extent here. Have you found that um, social media has played a, a huge, large role Huge, 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 huge. For a couple of things. Uh, we reach more people. Um, we, you know, I can take the speech I gave tonight. I can take it. I've recorded it. I can have it up on Twitter and, you know, couple hours and out it'll go, or the talk I gave it at the at Robson Hall this afternoon. I can have that, I gave a more detailed talk about the federal legislation, I can have that out today and then people could be telling me they've read about it from, or listened to it from all over. Um, it's also um, been really uh, effective for people to spread the word. It's also been really effective to reach the media. What we've found um, is increasingly that stories about barriers percolate up from social media to conventional media. So somebody will be using the T Toronto Transit Commission in Toronto and they'll find that the subway station they use has an elevator that's out of service and it's going to be four months till the darn elevator is fixed. So they start broadcasting it as an AODA failed tweet on Twitter and then we retweet it and next thing you know a reporter who follows us or checks this stuff out um, gets on and uh, covers the story. Whether the story came from us or not, they and then they come to us for comments. There's, they, I'm finding Twitter and social media is like the new form of a news release. It's playing the function of a news release. Um, so it's been huge that way. Um, anyway, yeah, yeah, no, it, it, it's been an amazing way to reach a lot more people. I mean, I was in New Zealand a year ago. They invited me down because they're modeling their campaign for accessibility legislation. The disability campaign is modeled after our Ontario campaign. So I'm tweeting about it, and then Patrick and others up here started tweeting words of encouragement to the New Zealand audience while I'm speaking there from Manitoba. So I could say in my speech in Auckland, I want you to know that while I'm talking to you, you're getting tweets of encouragement from Winnipeg, Manitoba. It's like, it's a long swim. 
from here, right? But that, and I got to tell you, with a room full of people like this, if they found out that people in Auckland, Manitoba were cheering them on, that, that's kind of cool. It really helps people be motivated. I mean, I, one night I was going to give a talk, this is several years ago, at, at a synagogue I belonged to in Mississauga, Ontario, outside Toronto. So I just did a tweet saying, tonight giving a talk on how to ensure how a religious uh, worship community can ensure they're accessible to uh, people with disabilities. And I got retweeted by an organization I don't know called Access Zambia. Oh, wow. Now, how many people, Zambia. Oh, really? Now, how many people in Zambia are thinking about my synagogue in Mississauga? Okay? And I tell them in Mississauga, this is like cool, guys. I mean, this is pocket I'm giving to my congregation that my rabbi asked me to get up and give. I mean, just think about it. I mean, the same way if you think about it as a journalist, okay? You write the story. And if I retweet it and our followers in, you know, wherever retweet it, you're getting retweets all over. Who knew about the Manitoban? Yeah. In wherever I'm, do you follow me? It's, uh, you know, people don't here know about it, but they may not know about it to some of the people I'm reaching. Mm -hmm. Well, today I'm talking to law students. So today yes. I was talking about telling them about um, the Canadian accessibility legislation issues. But I'm talking to them from the perspective of law students learning not only how to go to court to argue cases, but how to um, advance the cause of social justice more broadly and suggesting to them that that's an obligation I believe we lawyers have ethically. Like, I'm not the lawyer for my coalition. I'm, I'm, a, I'm the chair of the coalition. I'm a community organizer. But I'm trying to explain to them, to, to try to encourage them to break out of the old-style thought that lawyers are just people who go to courts or you know, write legal opinions, and that's all they do, that this is a really important way we can advance our skills. And for them, I'm going to be, you know, they're first-year law students. I'm going to be trying to, uh, which means they've only been in law school for four weeks and I, I try to engage them in the idea that this is part of their uh, social justice advocacy is part of what lawyers should be doing. For those who have been to the Winnipeg Art Gallery and have viewed the exhibitions and collections, you're probably aware that they showcase a large collection of beautiful indigenous art and have an extensive Inuit art collection. What patrons may not have been aware of, however, is that there is even more to the collection of Inuit art, which is located in the basement of the Winnipeg Art Gallery. Fortunately, this collection will soon be making its appearance. Currently under construction is an addition to the Winnipeg Art Gallery, an addition called the Inuit Art Centre, which is set to open in 2020. The four-story addition will feature new exhibition spaces, a glass-enclosed visible art vault, a conservation facility, a research centre, art studios, and classrooms. The Inuit Art Centre recently received a generous donation in the amount of $1 million. The donation comes from Louise Leatherdale and her late husband, Doug. Doug, born in Morden, Manitoba, moved to Minnesota and, among other things, founded Leatherdale Farms with Louise a premier Hanoverian horse farm located west of Minneapolis. Our news reporter Shauna Matthews spoke with Louise to discuss her donation, including her inspiration for doing so and what she hopes will come out of it. Shauna also spoke with the director and CEO of the Winnipeg Art Gallery, Stephen Boris. When we saw the need, it was a real need for some way to, to bring up from the vault in the basement to a place where people could actually see how important and beautiful this artwork is. For me and for Doug, it was a sculpture, but there's much, much more to it than that. There's all kinds of drawings and uh, uh, wall hangings and clothing. There'd be so many more possibilities. 
but for us it was a sculpture and that needed to be brought up and shown. You know, no, not until until the Inuit, uh, until we came to see it. We just had asked if maybe we could have a tour and they were so kind as to let us do that and then when we heard about the possibility of the center, we really thought we'd like to help commit to bringing that to fruition. Well, I know for in America, you know, uh, our Native Americans have, have sometimes not been part of our communities the way they should. And I'm sure it's probably the same up here in some ways. And so the idea that you would have artisans up there that could give so much back to the community in the South. And I'm, now the South will be able to give back to them by featuring their art and, and uh, doing teachings and lectures and, and so on. I think I think be a, a good thing. You can't help but be a good thing when you've got communication. I think it starts. We're just a beginning. Um, there are so many others that I'm sure will want to donate as well. And if they know that, that people find this not just a, a, a Winnipeg project, but a Manitoba, Canada, and international, they'll see the significance of this. I hope to be able to do fundraising, perhaps in, in the United States as well, to, to help bring bring this project through. Well, when you have the largest collection of contemporary internet art in the world, and you're situated for the Inuit in the south, their voice, that connection, that bridge is critical. In fact, their voice has to be the strongest. So we simply consider ourselves like a forum that the Inuit ideas, images, voices will come out, and we just facilitate that. So it's it's critical when you're building an Inuit center that that, that be understood. First of all, it gives us another million dollars towards our goal, which is incredible. It also raises a profile of the project, and it also, kind of in a in a challenger matching way, it'll I think encourage other donations at this phase of the campaign. It's going right towards a specific gallery within the large Inuit Art Center. It um, it also signals that this is an international project. Doug and Louise are from Minnesota, so all in all. It's important financially, programmatically, but also for the campaign. Again, if we're, if we're facilitating or helping tell that story, we want to show the generational quality of Inuit art. For acts, rather than these, many of these carvers or, or printmakers going to school, they are taught by a mother, a father, a brother, a family member. And so it's passed down. So we want to be able to show the, the best, the senior artists, the established artists, but also those just coming in um, to their art making. And I think that's critical for any culture. And I think it's our responsibility to show that. Well, I loved what Louise said about the jewel in the crown. And if you think of what's going on at the park, Journey to Churchill, Diversity Gardens, the Human Rights Museum, Antoine Museum, it all fits nicely together. And I think we're much stronger for a gift like this as a community. And that should do it for today's episode of Tobin Tuesdays. Once again, the interviews you heard today were provided by David Zarangi and Shauna Matthews. The intro music and transition music you heard was produced by Kenny Ingram. And the entire show was produced and hosted by me, Joe Gonzalez. We're going to end the show by leaving you with a track from Carly Dow. Carly is a folk musician who has roots in the Manitoba music community, and her sophomore album Comet is set for release on Friday, October 19th. She's also doing a show at the West End Cultural Center to commemorate the release of Comet on Friday, October 19th, as well as part of her 
tour across Western Canada. You can read an early album review of Comet in this week's edition of The Manitoban. This track is titled Sunlight Remembers, and we hope you enjoy it. We thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week.